Chapter 19, which is somewhat surprising. Pollyanna entered school in September. Preliminary examinations showed that she was well advanced for a girl of her years, and she was soon a happy member of a class of girls and boys her own age. School, in some ways, was a surprise to Pollyanna, and Pollyanna certainly, in many ways, was very much of a surprise to school. They were soon on the best of terms, however, and to her aunt, Pollyanna confessed that going to school was living, after all, though she had had her doubts before. In spite of her delight in her new work, Pollyanna did not forget her old friends. True, she could not give them quite so much time now, of course, but she gave them what time she could. Perhaps John Pendleton, of them all, however, was the most dissatisfied. One Saturday afternoon, he spoke to her about it. "'See here, Pollyanna, how would you like to come and live with me?' he asked, a little impatiently. "'I don't see anything of you nowadays.' Pollyanna laughed. Mr. Pendleton was such a funny man. "'I thought you didn't like to have folks round,' she said. He made a wry face. Oh, but that was before you taught me to play that wonderful game of yours. Now I'm glad to be waited on hand and foot. Never mind, I'll be on my own two feet yet, one of these days. Then I'll see who steps around, he finished, picking up one of the crutches at his side and shaking it playfully at the little girl. They were sitting in the great library today. Oh, but you aren't really glad at all for things. You just say you are pouted Pollyanna, her eyes on the dog dozing before the fire. You know you don't play the game right ever, Mr. Pendleton. You know you don't. The man's face grew suddenly very grave. That's why I want you, little girl, to help me play it. Will you come? Pollyanna turned in surprise. Mr. Pendleton, you don't really mean that? But I do. I want you. Will you come? Pollyanna looked distressed. Why, Mr. Pendleton, I can't. You know I can't. Why, I'm Aunt Polly's. A quick something crossed the man's face that Pollyanna could not quite understand. His head came up almost fiercely. You're no more hers than perhaps she would let you come to me, he finished more gently. Would you come? If she did? Pollyanna frowned in deep thought. But Aunt Polly has been so good to me, she began slowly. And she took me when I didn't have anybody left but the ladies' aid, and... Again, that spasm of something crossed the man's face. But this time, when he spoke, his voice was low and very sad. Pollyanna... Long years ago, I loved somebody very much. I hoped to bring her someday to this house. I pictured how happy we'd be together in our home all the long years to come. Yes, pitied Pollyanna, her eyes shining with sympathy. But, well, I didn't bring her here. Never mind why, I just didn't, that's all. And ever since then, this great gray pile of stone has been a house, never a home. It takes a woman's hand and heart, or a child's presence to make a home, Pollyanna. And I have not had either. 
Now will you come, my dear? Pollyanna sprang to her feet. Her face was fairly illumined. Mr. Pendleton, you... You mean that you wish you... You had had that woman's hand and heart all this time? Why, yes, Pollyanna. Oh, I'm so glad. Then it's all right, sighed the little girl. Now you can take us both, and everything will be lovely. Take you both? repeated the man dazedly. A faint doubt crossed Pollyanna's countenance. Well, of course, Aunt Polly isn't won over yet, but I'm sure she will be if you tell it to her just as you did to me, and then we'd both come, of course. A look of actual terror leaped to the man's eyes. Aunt Polly, come here. Pollyanna's eyes widened a little. Would you rather go there? she asked. Of course, the house isn't quite so pretty, but it's nearer. Pollyanna, what are you talking about? Asked the man, very gently now. Why, about where we're going to live, of course, rejoined Pollyanna in obvious surprise. I thought you meant here at first. You said it was here that you had wanted Aunt Polly's hand and heart all these years to make a home, and... An inarticulate cry came from the man's throat. He raised his hand and began to speak, but the next moment he dropped his hand nervelessly at his side. The doctor, sir, said the maid in the doorway. Pollyanna rose at once. John Pendleton turned to her feverishly. Pollyanna, for heaven's sake, say nothing of what I asked you. Yet, he begged in a low voice. Pollyanna dimpled into a sunny smile. Of course not, just as if I didn't know you'd rather tell her yourself, she called back merrily over her shoulder. John Pendleton fell limply back in his chair. Why, what's up? demanded the doctor a minute later, his fingers on his patient's galloping pulse. A whimsical smile trembled on John Pendleton's lips. Overdose of your tonic, I guess, he laughed, as he noted the doctor's eyes following Pollyanna's little figure down the driveway. Chapter 20, which is more surprising. Sunday mornings, Pollyanna usually attended church and Sunday school. Sunday afternoons, she frequently went for a walk with Nancy. She had planned one for the day after her Saturday afternoon visit to Mr. John Pendleton, but on the way home from Sunday school, Dr. Chilton overtook her in his gig and brought his horse to a stop. Suppose you let me drive you home, Pollyanna, he suggested. I want to speak to you a minute. I was just driving out to your place to tell you, he went on, as Pollyanna settled herself at his side. Mr. Pendleton sent a special request for you to go see him this afternoon, sure. He says it's very important. Pollyanna nodded happily. Yes, it is. I know. I'll go. The doctor eyed her with some surprise. I'm not sure I shall let you after all, he declared, his eyes twinkling. You seemed more upsetting than soothing yesterday, young lady. Pollyanna laughed. <laughs> it wasn't me, truly. Not really, you know. Not so much as it was Aunt Polly. The doctor turned with a quick start. Your aunt? He ejaculated. 
Pollyanna gave a happy little bounce in her seat. Yes, and it's so exciting and lovely, just like a story, you know. I, I'm going to tell it to you, she burst out with sudden decision. He said not to mention it, but he wouldn't mind your knowing, of course. He meant not to mention it to her. Her? Yes, Aunt Polly. And of course, he would want to tell her himself instead of having me do it. Lovers, so... Lovers? As the doctor said the word, the horse started violently, as if the hand that held the reins had given them a sharp jerk. Yes, nodded Pollyanna happily. That's the story part, you see. I didn't know it till Nancy told me. She said Aunt Polly had a lover years ago, and they quarreled. She didn't know who it was at first, but we've found out now. It's Mr. Pendleton, you know. The doctor relaxed suddenly. The hand holding the reins fell limply to his lap. Oh, no, I didn't know, he said quietly. Pollyanna hurried on. They were nearing the Harrington homestead. Yes, and I'm so glad now. It's come out lovely. Mr. Pendleton asked me to come and live with him, but of course I wouldn't leave Aunt Polly like that, after she'd been so good to me. Then he told me all about the woman's hand and heart that he used to want, and I found out that he wanted it now, and I was so glad. For, of course, if he wants to make up the quarrel, everything will be all right now. And Aunt Polly and I will both go to live there, or else he'll come to live with us. Of course, Aunt Polly doesn't know yet, and we haven't got everything settled. So I suppose that is why he wanted to see me this afternoon, sure. The doctor sat suddenly erect. There was an odd smile on his lips. Yes, I can well imagine that Mr. John Pendleton does want to see you, Pollyanna. He nodded as he pulled his horse to a stop before the door. There's Aunt Polly now in the window, cried Pollyanna. Then, a second later, Why, no, she isn't, but I thought I saw her. No, she isn't there now, said the doctor. His lips had suddenly lost their smile. Pollyanna found a very nervous John Pendleton waiting for her that afternoon. Pollyanna, he began at once. I've been trying all night to puzzle out what you meant by all that, yesterday, about my wanting your Aunt Polly's hand and heart here all those years. What did you mean? Why, because you were lovers, you know, once, and I was so glad you still felt that way now. Lovers? Your Aunt Polly and I? At the obvious surprise in the man's voice, Pollyanna opened wide her eyes. Why, Mr. Pendleton, Nancy said you were. The man gave a short little laugh. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I'm afraid I shall have to say that Nancy didn't know. Then you weren't lovers? Pollyanna's voice was tragic with dismay. Never. And it isn't all coming out like a book? There was no answer. The man's eyes were moodily fixed out the window. Oh, dear. And it was all going so splendidly, almost sobbed Pollyanna. I'd have been so glad to come with Aunt Polly. And you won't now? The man asked the question without turning his head. 
Of course not. I'm Aunt Polly's. The man turned now, almost fiercely. Before you were hers, Pollyanna, you were your mother's. And it was your mother's hand and heart that I wanted long years ago. My mother's? Yes. I had not meant to tell you, but perhaps it's better, after all, that I do. Now. John Pendleton's face had grown very white. He was speaking with evident difficulty. Pollyanna, her eyes wide and frightened, and her lips parted, was gazing at him fixedly. I loved your mother, but she didn't love me. And after a time, she went away with your father. I did not know until then how much I did care. The whole world suddenly seemed to turn black under my fingers and, but never mind. For long years, I have been a cross, crabbed, unlovable, unloved old man, though I'm not nearly 60 yet, Pollyanna. Then, one day, like one of the prisms that you love so well, little girl, you danced into my life and flecked my dreary old world with dashes of the purple and gold and scarlet of your own bright cheeriness. I found out, after a time, who you were, and and I thought then I never wanted to see you again. I didn't want to be reminded of your mother. But you know how that came out. I just had to have you come, and now I want you always. Pollyanna, won't you come now? But, Mr. Pendleton, I... There's Aunt Polly. Pollyanna's eyes were blurred with tears. The man made an impatient gesture. What about me? How do you suppose I'm going to be glad about anything without you? Why, Pollyanna, it's only since you came that I've been even half glad to live. But if I had you for my own little girl, I'd be glad for anything, and I'd try to make you glad too, my dear. You shouldn't have a wish ungratified. All my money to the last cent should go to make you happy. Pollyanna looked shocked. Why, Mr. Pendleton, as if I'd let you spend it on me, all that money you've saved for the heathen. A dull red came to the man's face. He started to speak, but Pollyanna was still talking. Besides, anybody with such a lot of money as you have doesn't need me to make you glad about things. You're making other folks so glad giving them things that you just can't help being glad yourself. Why, look at those prisms you gave Mrs. Snow and me, and the gold piece you gave Nancy on her birthday, and- Yes, yes, never mind about all that, interrupted the man. His face was very, very red now, and no wonder, perhaps. It was not forgiving things that John Pendleton had been best known in the past. That's all nonsense. Twasn't much, anyhow. But what there was, was because of you. You gave those things, not I. Yes, you did, he repeated, in answer to the shocked denial in her face. And that only goes to prove all the more how I need you, little girl, he added, his voice softening into tender pleading once more. If ever, ever I am to play the glad game, Pollyanna, 
you'll have to come and play it with me. The little girl's forehead puckered into a wistful frown. Aunt Polly has been so good to me, she began, but the man interrupted her sharply. The old irritability had come back to his face. Impatience, which would brook no opposition, had been a part of John Pendleton's nature too long to yield very easily now to restraint. Of course she's been good to you, but she doesn't want you, I'll warrant, half so much as I do, he contested. Why, Mr. Pendleton, she's glad, I know, to have- Glad, interrupted the man, thoroughly losing his patience now. I'll wager Miss Polly doesn't know how to be glad, for anything. Oh, she does her duty, I know. She's a very dutiful woman. I've had experience with her duty before. I'll acknowledge we haven't been the best of friends for the last fifteen or twenty years. But I know her. Everyone knows her. And she isn't the glad kind, Pollyanna. She doesn't know how to be. As for your coming to me, you just ask her and see if she won't let you come. And oh, little girl, little girl, I want you so, he finished brokenly. Pollyanna rose to her feet with a long sigh. All right, I'll ask her, she said wistfully. Of course, I don't mean that I wouldn't like to live here with you, Mr. Pendleton, but... She did not complete her sentence. There was a moment's silence. Then she added, Well, anyhow, I'm glad I didn't tell her yesterday, because then I supposed she was wanted too. John Pendleton smiled grimly. Well, yes, Pollyanna. I guess it is just as well you didn't mention it yesterday. I didn't. Only to the doctor, and of course he doesn't count. The doctor, cried John Pendleton, turning quickly. Not Dr. Chilton? Yes, when he came to tell me you wanted to see me today, you know. Well, of all the... muttered the man, falling back in his chair. Then he sat up with sudden interest. And what did Dr. Chilton say? he asked. Pollyanna frowned thoughtfully. Why, I don't remember. Not much, I reckon. Oh, he did say he could well imagine you did want to see me. Oh, did he indeed, answered John Pendleton. And Pollyanna wondered why he gave that sudden queer little laugh. Chapter 21, A Question Answered. The sky was darkening fast with what appeared to be an approaching thunder shower when Pollyanna hurried down the hill from John Pendleton's house. Halfway home, she met Nancy with an umbrella. By that time, however, the clouds had shifted their position and the shower was not so imminent. Guess it's going round to the north, announced Nancy, eyeing the sky critically. I thought it was all the time, but Miss Polly wanted me to come with this. She was worried about you. Was she? murmured Pollyanna abstractedly, eyeing the clouds in her turn. Nancy sniffed a little. You don't seem to notice what I said, she observed aggrievedly. I said your aunt was worried about you. Oh, sighed Pollyanna, remembering suddenly the question she was so soon to ask her aunt. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare her. Well, I'm glad, 
retorted Nancy unexpectedly. I am, I am. Pollyanna stared. Glad that Aunt Polly was scared about me? Why, Nancy, that isn't the way to play the game. To be glad for things like that, she objected. There wasn't no game in it, retorted Nancy. Never thought of it. You don't seem to sense what it means to have Miss Polly worried about you, child. Why, it means worried, and worried is horrid to feel, maintained Pollyanna. What else can it mean? Nancy tossed her head. Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means she's at last getting down somewheres near human, like folks, and that she ain't just doing her duty by you all the time. Why, Nancy, demurred the scandalized Pollyanna. Aunt Polly always does her duty. She's... she's a very dutiful woman. Unconsciously, Pollyanna repeated John Pendleton's words of half an hour before. Nancy chuckled. You're right, she is. And always was, I guess. But she's something more now, since you came. Pollyanna's face changed. Her brows drew into a troubled frown. There, that's what I was going to ask you, Nancy, she sighed. Do you think Aunt Polly likes to have me here? Would she mind if I wasn't here anymore? Nancy threw a quick look into the little girl's absorbed face. She had expected to be asked this question long before, and she had dreaded it. She had wondered how she should answer it, how she could answer it honestly without cruelly hurting the questioner. But now, now, in the face of the new suspicions that had become convictions by the afternoon's umbrella sending, Nancy only welcomed the question with open arms. She was sure that, with a clean conscience today, she could set the love-hungry little girl's heart at rest. Likes to have you here. Would she miss you if you wasn't here? cried Nancy indignantly. As if that wasn't just what I was telling of you. Didn't she send me post-haste with an umbrella because she see a little cloud in the sky? Didn't she make me tote your things all downstairs so you could have the pretty room you wanted? Why, Miss Pollyanna, when you remember how at first she hated to have... With a choking cough, Nancy pulled herself up just in time. And it ain't just things I can put my fingers on, neither, rushed on Nancy, breathlessly. It's little ways she has that shows how you've been softening her up and mellering her down. The cat and the dog and the way she speaks to me and, oh, lots of things. Why, Miss Pollyanna, there ain't no telling how she'd miss you if you wasn't here finished Nancy, speaking with an enthusiastic certainty that was meant to hide the perilous admission she had almost made before. Even then, she was not quite prepared for the sudden joy that illumined Pollyanna's face. Oh, Nancy, I'm so glad, glad, glad. You don't know how glad I am that Aunt Polly wants me. As if I'd leave her now, thought Pollyanna, as she climbed the stairs to her room a little later. I always knew I wanted to live with Aunt Polly, but I reckon maybe I didn't know quite how much I wanted Aunt Polly to want to live with me. The task of telling John Pendleton of her decision would not be an easy one, Pollyanna knew, and she dreaded it. 
She was very fond of John Pendleton, and she was very sorry for him, because he seemed to be so sorry for himself. She was sorry, too, for the long, lonely life that had made him so unhappy, and she was grieved that it had been because of her mother that he had spent those dreary years. She pictured the great gray house as it would be after its master was well again, with its silent rooms, its littered floors, and its disordered desk, and her heart ached for his loneliness. She wished that somewhere, someone might be found who... And it was at this point that she sprang to her feet with a little cry of joy at the thought that had come to her. As soon as she could, after that, she hurried up the hill to John Pendleton's house, and in due time she found herself in the great dim library, with John Pendleton himself sitting near her, his long, thin hands lying idle on the arms of his chair, and his faithful little dog at his feet. Well, Pollyanna, is it to be the glad game with me all the rest of my life? Asked the man gently. Oh, yes, cried Pollyanna. I've thought of the very gladdest kind of a thing for you to do, and... With you? Asked John Pendleton, his mouth growing a little stern at the corners. No, but... Pollyanna, you aren't going to say no, interrupted a voice deep with emotion. I... I've got to, Mr. Pendleton. Truly, I have. Aunt Polly... Did she refuse to let you... Come... I, I didn't ask her, stammered the little girl miserably. Pollyanna. Pollyanna turned away her eyes. She could not meet the hurt, grieved gaze of her friend. So you didn't even ask her? I couldn't, sir, truly, faltered Pollyanna. You see, I found out, without asking. Aunt Polly wants me with her, and... and... I want to stay, too, she confessed bravely. You don't know how good she's been to me, and and I think, really, sometimes she's beginning to be glad about things. Lots of things. And you know she never used to be. You said it yourself. Oh, Mr. Pendleton, I couldn't leave Aunt Polly. Now. There was a long pause. Only the snapping of the wood fire in the grate broke the silence. At last, however, the man spoke. No, Pollyanna, I see. You couldn't leave her. Now, he said, I won't ask you again. The last word was so low it was almost inaudible, but Pollyanna heard. Oh, but you don't know about the rest of it, minded him eagerly. There's the very gladdest thing you can do. Truly there is. Not for me, Pollyanna. Yes, sir, for you. You said it. You said only a a woman's hand and heart or a child's presence could make a home. And I can get it for you. A child's presence. Not me, you know, but another one. As if I would have any but you, resented an indignant voice. But you will, when you know. You're so kind and good. Why... Think of the prisms and the gold pieces and all that money you save for the heathen and- Pollyanna, interrupted the man savagely. Once for all, let us end that nonsense. I've tried to tell you half a dozen times before. There is no money for the heathen. 
I never sent a penny to them in my life. There. He lifted his chin and braced himself to meet what he expected. The grieved disappointment of Pollyanna's eyes. To his amazement, however, there was neither grief nor disappointment in Pollyanna's eyes. There was only surprised joy. Oh, oh, she cried, clapping her hands. I'm so glad. That is, she corrected, coloring distressfully. I don't mean that I'm not sorry for the heathen. Only just now I can't help being glad that you don't want the little India boys, because all the rest have wanted them. And so I'm glad you'd rather have Jimmy Bean. Now I know you'll take him. Take who? Jimmy Bean. He's the child's presence, you know. And he'll be so glad to be it. I had to tell him last week that even my ladies ate out west wouldn't take him, and he was so disappointed. But now, when he hears of this, he'll be so glad. Will he? Well, uh, I won't, ejaculated the man decisively. Pollyanna, this is sheer nonsense. You don't mean you won't take him? I certainly do mean just that. But he'd be a lovely child's presence, faltered Pollyanna. She was almost crying now. And you couldn't be lonesome with Jimmy round. I don't doubt it, rejoined the man. But I think I prefer the lonesomeness. It was then that Pollyanna, for the first time in weeks, suddenly remembered something Nancy had once told her. She raised her chin aggrievedly. Maybe you think a nice, live little boy wouldn't be better than that old dead skeleton you keep somewhere. But I think it would. Skeleton? Yes. Nancy said you had one in your closet somewhere. Why, what? Suddenly, the man threw back his head and laughed. He laughed very heartily indeed. So heartily that Pollyanna began to cry from pure nervousness. When he saw that, John Pendleton sat erect, very promptly. His face grew grave at once. Pollyanna, I suspect you are right. More right than you know, he said gently. In fact, I know that a nice live little boy would be far better than my skeleton in the closet. Only, we aren't always willing to make the exchange, we are apt to still cling to our skeletons, Pollyanna. However, suppose you tell me a little more about this nice little boy. And Pollyanna told him. Perhaps the laugh cleared the air, or perhaps the pathos of Jimmy Bean's story as told by Pollyanna's eager little lips touched a heart already strangely softened. At all events, when Pollyanna went home that night, she carried with her an invitation for Jimmy Bean himself to call at the great house with Pollyanna the next Saturday afternoon. And I'm so glad, and I'm sure you'll like him, sighed Pollyanna as she said goodbye. I do so want Jimmy Bean to have a home, and folks that care, you know. Chapter 22 Sermons and Woodboxes on the afternoon that Pollyanna told John Pendleton of Jimmy Bean, the Reverend Paul Ford climbed the hill and entered the Pendleton Woods, 
hoping that the hushed beauty of gods out of doors would still the tumult that his children of men had wrought. The Reverend Paul Ford was sick at heart. Month by month for a year past, conditions in the parish under him had been growing worse and worse, until it seemed that now, turn which way he would, he encountered only wrangling, backbiting, scandal, and jealousy. He had argued, pleaded, rebuked, and ignored by turns, and always and through all he had prayed, earnestly, hopefully. But today, miserably, he was forced to own that matters were no better, but rather worse. Two of his deacons were at sword's points over a silly something that only endless brooding had made of any account. Three of his most energetic women workers had withdrawn from the Ladies' Aid Society because a tiny spark of gossip had been fanned by wagging tongues into a devouring flame of scandal. The choir had split over the amount of solo work given to a fancidly preferred singer— even the Christian Endeavor Society was in a ferment of unrest owing to open criticism of two of its officers. As to the Sunday school, it had been the resignation of its superintendent and two of its teachers that had been the last straw, and that had sent the harassed minister to the quiet woods for prayer and meditation. Under the green arch of the trees, the Reverend Paul Ford faced the thing squarely. To his mind... The crisis had come. Something must be done, and done at once. The entire work of the church was at a standstill. The Sunday services, the weekday prayer meeting, the missionary teas, even the suppers and socials were becoming less and less well attended. True, a few conscientious workers were still left, but they pulled at cross-purposes, usually, and always they showed themselves to be acutely aware of the critical eyes all about them, and of the tongues that had nothing to do but to talk about what the eyes saw. And because of all this, the Reverend Paul Ford understood very well that he, God's minister, the church, the town, and even Christianity itself was suffering, and must suffer still more unless... Clearly, something must be done, and done at once. But what? Slowly, the minister took from his pocket the notes he had made for his next Sunday's sermon. Frowningly, he looked at them. His mouth settled into stern lines, as aloud, very impressively, he read the verses on which he had determined to speak. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. It was a bitter denunciation. In the green aisles of the woods, the minister's deep voice rang out with scathing effect. 
Even the birds and squirrels seemed hushed into awed silence. It brought to the minister a vivid realization of how those words would sound the next Sunday when he should utter them before his people in the sacred hush of the church. His people. They were his people. Could he do it? Dare he do it? Dare he not do it? It was a fearful denunciation, even without the words that would follow. His own words. He had prayed and prayed. He had pleaded earnestly for help, for guidance. He longed, oh, how earnestly he longed, to take now in this crisis the right step. But was this the right step? Slowly, the minister folded the papers and thrust them back into his pocket. Then, with a sigh that was almost a moan, he flung himself down at the foot of a tree and covered his face with his hands. It was there that Pollyanna, on her way home from the Pendleton house, found him. With a little cry, she ran forward. Oh, oh, Mr. Ford, you... you haven't broken your leg or... or anything, have you? she gasped. The minister dropped his hands and looked up quickly. He tried to smile. No, dear. No, indeed. I'm just... resting. Oh, sighed Pollyanna, falling back a little. That's all right, then. You see, Mr. Pendleton had broken his leg when I found him, but he was lying down, though, and you were sitting up. Yes, I am sitting up and I haven't broken anything that the doctors can mend. The last words were very low, but Pollyanna heard them. A swift change crossed her face. Her eyes glowed with tender sympathy. I know what you mean. Something plagues you. Father used to feel like that lots of times. I reckon ministers do, most generally. You see, there's such a lot depends on them somehow. The Reverend Paul Ford turned a little wonderingly. Was your father a minister, Pollyanna? Yes, sir. Didn't you know? I supposed everybody knew that. He married Aunt Polly's sister, and she was my mother. Oh, I understand. But, you see, I haven't been here many years, so I don't know all the family histories. Yes, sir. I mean, no, sir, smiled Pollyanna. There was a long pause. The minister, still sitting at the foot of the tree, appeared to have forgotten Pollyanna's presence. He had pulled some papers from his pocket and unfolded them, but he was not looking at them. He was gazing instead at a leaf on the ground a little distance away, and it was not even a pretty leaf. It was brown and dead. Pollyanna, looking at him, felt vaguely sorry for him. It's... It's a nice day, she began hopefully. For a moment, there was no answer. Then the minister looked up with a start. What? Oh, yes, it is a very nice day. And tisn't cold at all either, even if it tis October, observed Pollyanna, still more hopefully. Mr. Pendleton had a fire, but he said he didn't need it. It was just to look at. I like to look at fires, don't you? There was no reply this time, though Pollyanna waited patiently before she tried again. 
by a new route. Do you like being a minister? The Reverend Paul Ford looked up now, very quickly. Do I like... Why, what an odd question. Why do you ask that, my dear? Nothing. Only the way you looked. It made me think of my father. He used to look like that, sometimes. Did he? The minister's voice was polite, but his eyes had gone back to the dried leaf on the ground. Yes, and I used to ask him just as I did you if he was glad he was a minister. The man under the tree smiled a little sadly. Well, what did he say? Oh, he always said he was, of course, but most always he said, too, that he wouldn't stay a minister a minute, if it wasn't for the rejoicing texts. The... what? The Reverend Paul Ford's eyes left the leaf and gazed wonderingly into Pollyanna's merry little face. Well, that's what Father used to call him, she laughed. Of course, the Bible didn't name him that, but it's all those that begin, be glad in the Lord, or rejoice greatly, or shout for joy and all that, you know? Such a lot of them. Once, when Father felt specially bad, he counted them. There were eight hundred of them. Eight hundred? Yes, that told you to rejoice and be glad, you know? That's why Father named them the rejoicing texts. Oh. There was an odd look on the minister's face. His eyes had fallen to the words on the top paper in his hands. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And so your father liked those rejoicing texts, he murmured. Oh, yes, nodded Pollyanna emphatically. He said he felt better right away, that first day he thought to count him. He said if God took the trouble to tell us 800 times to be glad and rejoice, he must want us to do it, some. And Father felt ashamed that he hadn't done it more. After that, they got to be such a comfort to him, you know, when things went wrong, when the ladies' aiders got to fight. I mean, when they didn't agree about something, corrected Pollyanna hastily. Why, it was those texts too, Father said, that made him think of the game. He began with me on the crutches, but he said was the rejoicing text that started him on it. And what game might that be? asked the minister. About finding something and everything to be glad about, you know? As I said, he began with me on the crutches. And once more, Pollyanna told her story, this time to a man who listened with tender eyes and understanding ears. A little later, Pollyanna and the minister descended the hill, hand in hand. Pollyanna's face was radiant. Pollyanna loved to talk, and she had been talking now for some time. There seemed to be so many, many things about the game, her father, and the old home life that the minister wanted to know. At the foot of the hill, their ways parted, and Pollyanna down one road and the minister down another walked on alone. In the Reverend Paul Ford's study that evening, the minister sat thinking. Near him on the desk lay a few loose sheets of paper, his sermon notes. Under the suspended pencil in his fingers lay other sheets of paper, blank, his sermon to be. 
but the minister was not thinking either of what he had written or of what he intended to write. In his imagination, he was far away in a little western town with a missionary minister who was poor, sick, worried, and almost alone in the world, but who was poring over the Bible to find how many times his lord and master had told him to rejoice and be glad. After a time, with a long sigh, the Reverend Paul Ford roused himself, came back from the far western town, and adjusted the sheets of paper under his hand. Matthew 23rd, 13-14 and 23, he wrote. Then, with a gesture of impatience, he dropped his pencil and pulled toward him a magazine left on the desk by his wife a few minutes before. Listlessly, his tired eyes turned from paragraph to paragraph until these words arrested them. A father one day said to his son, Tom, who he knew had refused to fill his mother's woodbox that morning, Tom, I'm sure you'll be glad to go and bring in some wood for your mother. And without a word, Tom went. Why? Just because his father showed so plainly that he expected him to do the right thing. Suppose he had said, Tom, I overheard what you said to your mother this morning, and I'm ashamed of you. Go at once and fill that wood box. I'll warrant that wood box would be empty yet, so far as Tom was concerned. On and on read the minister, a word here, a line there, a paragraph somewhere else. What men and women need is encouragement. Their natural resisting power should be strengthened, not weakened. Instead of always harping on a man's faults, tell him of his virtues. Try to pull him out of his rut of bad habits. Hold up to him his better self, his real self that can dare and do and win out. The influence of a beautiful, helpful, hopeful character is contagious and may revolutionize a whole town. People radiate what is in their minds and in their hearts. If a man feels kindly and obliging, his neighbors will feel that way too before long. But if he scolds and scowls and criticizes, his neighbors will return scowl for scowl and add interest. When you look for the bad, expecting it, you will get it. When you know you will find the good, you will get that. Tell your son Tom you know he'll be glad to fill that wood box. Then watch him start, alert and interested. The minister dropped the paper and lifted his chin. In a moment, he was on his feet, tramping the narrow room back and forth, back and forth. Later, some time later, he drew a long breath and dropped himself in the chair at his desk. God helping me, I'll do it, he cried softly. I'll tell all my Toms I know they'll be glad to fill that wood box. I'll give them work to do, and I'll make them so full of the very joy of doing it that they won't have time to look at their neighbors' wood boxes. And he picked up his sermon notes, tore straight through the sheets, and cast them from him, so that on one side of his chair lay, But woe unto you, and on the other, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, while across the smooth white paper before him his pencil fairly flew, 
After first drawing one black line through Matthew 23rd, 13 through 14 and 23. Thus it happened that the Reverend Paul Ford's sermon the next Sunday was a veritable bugle call to the best that was in every man and woman and child that heard it, and its text was one of Pollyanna's shining 800. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart.